I could chart I could I could start the show every day saying this another mass shooting in America another mass shooting in America the lead starts right now This is awful our bodies and our minds are not meant to go through these types of tragedies American people go through this again and again this time four innocent people killed nine innocent people injured and yet another community in harm. Today, after a mass shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, after a lone gunman opened fire in his workplace, a bank. The governor himself says he knew one of the victims killed. Plus, emergency moves by the Justice Department and a drug manufacturer today trying to hit the brakes on a ruling from a Texas judge appointed by Trump that effectively would ban the availability of a popular abortion pill. And... Classified Pentagon documents leaked online, revealing top-secret information on allies and adversaries. This leak different from previous ones because of how fresh the intel is. I'll speak with the House Intelligence Committee chairman, who was set to be briefed on the matter just moments ago. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. It is another emotional day. We start with our national lead, the search for a motive after another horrendous mass shooting in the United States moments ago. Kentucky officials giving an update on the attack at a Louisville bank this morning. Police say at least four innocent people were killed and at least nine others were injured. The four killed were just identified at a press conference. They are, they were, Thomas Elliott, James Tutt, Joshua Barrick, and Juliana Farmer. The police chief revealed that one of the officers injured was brand new to the job today. The officer who is in critical condition today, Officer Nicholas Wilt, 26 years of age, just graduated from the police academy on March 31st. I just swore him in and his family was there to witness his journey to become a police officer. He was struck in the head, engaged in this incident. Nick has come out of brain surgery and is in critical but stable condition as we speak. Officials said that the gunman was a 23-year-old bank employee. They say he used a rifle in the attack. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says he knew many of the victims, one of whom had been a close friend. We lost four children of God today, one of whom was one of my closest friends. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career. Today is the 100th day of the year, and already there have been 146 mass shootings in the United States. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive, which defines a mass shooting as four or more victims shot or killed. Let's go to Louisville now. CNN's Omar Jimenez is near the scene. And Omar, what's the very latest in the investigation? 
Well, Jake, we, we heard from public officials really for the first time trying to process in real time while also trying to continue leading their communities. We know the shooting happened early this morning around 8.30 or so before the bank had opened. Police responded in just three minutes, but even in that time, four people were killed before there was an exchange of gunfire between law enforcement and the shooter. And as we understand, the shooter was killed uh, by gunfire. As you mentioned, a 23-year-old employee at the old National Bank, who police say may have been live streaming the event as it was happening. Outside of those killed, nine were taken to the hospital, including a police officer, 26-year-old Nicholas Wilt, uh, an officer who had just graduated from the police academy. We learned from the police department today that he was shot in the head and is in critical condition as the interim police chief thanked him as being one of the brave ones who ran towards the gunfire here. And the mayor here, Craig Greenberg, may have summed up the sentiments from public officials here best. Let's be clear about what this was. This was an evil act of targeted violence, Jake. And Omar, both Governor Bashir and Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg yeah. say they lost friends in today's shooting. What do we know about the victims? Yeah, I mean, obviously, these are two officials that have jobs to do in their official capacity, but it's a reminder of how close-knit many of these communities here, especially in Louisville. We got the names of the four killed. They are Joshua Barrick, Thomas Elliott, or Tommy Elliott, as he's been described, Juliana Farmer, and James Tut. In particular, Tommy Elliott, Governor Andy Bashir said this was someone who helped him build his law career, one of his closest friends. And so that while he's trying to lead, he's also trying to process. And while he did say there is going to be a time uh, to grieve or that they want time to grieve here and focus on the victims, he also wanted to commend those who rushed in to prevent even more lives from being lost. Governor Bashir has ordered flags to be ordered at half staff as this community begins to try and process things. But separately, as for those that were transported to the hospital, three were already released. But the head of uh, the chief medical officer at the University of Louisville Health says that every single person that's arrived, none of them has increased to that deceased uh, level. But obviously, that's something that could change in the coming days, Jake. Omar Jimenez in Louisville for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, as well as CNN's senior crime and justice correspondent, Shimon Prokopes. John, um, you have some brand new reporting about the gunman. What can you tell us? Well, as it's been developing, information about Connor Sturgeon, 23 years old, is becoming a little clearer. The motive, not entirely clear, but what we have learned is uh, law enforcement sources say he was either terminated or was aware that he was about to be terminated from his employment at that bank. Uh, this certainly rose anxiety, and he, um, we are told by those sources, wrote a note addressed to his parents and a friend indicating he was going to conduct a shooting at the bank. Here's what's not clear, whether that note was something on paper that was left somewhere and found later, or whether it was an email. We don't know if that note was read before the shooting or after the fact, we are aware that um, sources tell us that his parents, hearing about it on the news, rushed to the scene, um, believing it possibly could have been him. Uh, we also uh, have learned from law enforcement during the press conference uh, that it was live-streamed by the shooter on, on a social media platform, a well-known social media platform, and that they were able to find that video and take it down. Um, it's not clear 
at this point how many other people found that video or if it's out there. But uh, as you would note, it's similar to what we saw in the Buffalo mass shooting at the supermarket. So um, on the gun, an AR-15 type rifle, uh, that's being traced to determine its point of purchase and whether it was owned by the shooter or someone else. Um, a lot of things going on in the background, search warrants being conducted at the resident, legal process uh, being served on multiple social media platforms to see what they can glean about his communications and thinking before this. Shimon, the police chief noted how quickly officers ran directly into danger, directly into the bank, confronting the gunman, uh, and she thanked them. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it was a remarkable uh moment, certainly, Jake, the idea that a police chief would thank her officers for showing up. And that's essentially what she said, um, dealing with the fact that she has this officer now just 26 years old, 10 days on the job uh, in a police department that has just been reeling. I mean, they've been uh, under investigation for quite some time. We know there's that civil rights investigation by the Department of Justice. So it's really hard for them to hire police officers there, as it is all across the country. And it was a remarkable moment for her to stand there and to say, thank you for showing up. And then she said, if we don't do it, who will? And then she ended by saying, this should not continue to happen. And for many officers and police departments all across the country are now on the front lines of this. And their actions save lives if they do what they're told to do with the way they're trained. And we saw that uh, here in this shooting, the officers responding in just minutes, three minutes. They were on scene encountering uh, the gunmen, exchanging gunfire with the gunmen and the police chief there indicating that they killed the gunmen. And because of their heroic efforts, they were able to save more lives. Uh, it, it was a moving moment, certainly a significant moment. And really today for this police department and the officials there, Jake, it seems as much as we want to know what happened here and why it happened, they really want to focus on the victims here and just the lives that have been lost and the pain now that this community is feeling. John, uh, police say that this was a case of workplace violence, an employee who attacked his office either because he was about to be fired or had been fired How does that investigation differ from a mass shooting that might take place at a school, uh, as we saw in Memphis recently, or at a store, as you mentioned, uh, that took place in Buffalo? You know, each one of these is the same in so many ways, and yet each one is different in its individual facts. Uh, If you look at today, here is someone who came to that bank very young, did three years of summer internships before getting training and then coming on in 2022 as a full-time employee. Um, this was essentially his first and only job uh, from, as an economic student uh, from a, a university in Alabama who seemed to be focused on a career in banking. So, you know, losing this job or about to be losing this job certainly reached him. But if you look at Buffalo... That was a a young kid who was coming off the year of the pandemic, who spent, according to uh, investigators, that entire year online reading the vitriolic, racist uh, things that you can find in the darkest corners of the Internet. Um, But that takes us back to Nashville, which is, you know, someone who went to that school, but many years before, who was looking back at, you know, issues that um, that affected her life. So. Each one of these have the common thread of, I'm going to go back to the people that I blame for my problems, 
and I'm going to carry out an act of violence. Yeah, and I'm able to do so with a gun that can outgun police officers because that's the state of gun laws in this country. Uh, Shimon, um, you've covered too many of these horrific mass shootings, as have I. Um, What do the next few days and weeks look like for the people of Louisville, especially those who are part of the community uh, surrounding that bank? Well, certainly, you know, having spent... uh most of the past year, Jake, in Uvalde. Um, and then I did, I covered Buffalo as well. It's always, you know, the days after, um, always the most difficult, you know, for all of us, uh, for those of us who come into this community and obviously for the people who live there and these families, um, trying to get answers, uh, planning for funerals, um, trying to just really understand why this happened. And the other thing really um, that I'm always struck with, and, and we heard the governor and the mayor talk about are the survivors. Uh, and what happens to them and the way they feel and how much they suffer, both physically and mentally. And then they also have um, something that's not really talked uh, a lot about is survivor's guilt and and dealing with with that and their families having to deal with that. So it's going to be a very emotional day because in many ways, victims often are left wondering, what if someone did could have, what if we did something different? What if someone knew something? What if, you know, there were better laws? What if somehow, uh, you know, we didn't allow this gun to get into this man's uh, hands? Those are the kind of questions that they start to ask and the guilt that the families live with. And then also just briefly for the police officers and sort of the pain that they're going to have to be dealing with in the coming days as well. But it's all around just going to be a really painful time for that community. Ron Prokopaz, John Miller, thanks to both of you for your excellent reporting. Appreciate it. Coming up, CNN is also live in Nashville, Tennessee, where protesters are gathering right now ahead of a vote that could reinstate one of the two Democrats kicked out of the state legislature last week. Plus, the emergency measures today in the wake of a judge suspending the use, effectively, of an abortion pill, despite, despite its scientific research behind it. Plus, the message in the West Bank as a sea of people marched to an outpost deemed illegal by the Israeli government. Also in our national lead today, we're just minutes away from a rally in Nashville in support of reinstating State Representative Justin Jones to the Tennessee legislature. This comes after he was removed last week by House Republicans, who said that Jones, along with two other Democratic representatives, broke the rules by bringing, leading, really, a rowdy gun reform protest to the House floor. In about an hour, the Nashville Metropolitan Council will meet in a special session, and they will vote on whether Jones will be appointed to fill, on an interim basis, his own legislative seat until there is a special election. CNN's Ryan Young is outside City Hall. Ryan, how likely does it seem that it will be that Jones will be appointed to fill his own seat? Well, it seems very likely at this point, Jake. I can tell you there's a lot of energy behind this. You think about a 4 o'clock meeting at City Hall. It doesn't really get this kind of attention normally, especially in the national spotlight. But what we've seen here, this really has galvanized people across the country. They actually want to be here. And we've talked to folks as far away who's come from several different states over who wanted to be here for this vote because they think democracy is in trouble. This vote here, if you've been talking to people who've been watching the council for years, they believe they will vote to send Jones back. There will also be some symbolic measures that will take place in the next half hour or so. But listen to one of the council members talk about how they plan to push this forward in the next hour and a half or so. 
The state legislature, the House of Representatives, does go in at 5 o'clock tonight. We are meeting. The city council's meeting at 4.30. We expect to move very, very quickly. We could have um, our certified results back up there by 5 o'clock, and then it will be in the state's hands once again whether they accept that tonight. Now, Jake, when this happens, they plan to walk out those doors there and they plan to march all the way down the street to the state capitol with the minutes from that vote in their hand to try to get Member Jones back in his seat tonight so you can understand the symbolism in all this. And you can see folks are starting to gather from all across this community to have their voices heard again. Yeah, and while we're reeling from the Louisville shooting, we should remember the impetus for all of this. Uh, was the the shooting at Covenant School in Nashville. And you're talking to protesters as they gather for this rally. What are you hearing from them? Jake, that's a great question. If you think about what happened today, and now this was all about gun violence, if you come forward, you can see some of the signs that people have about gun violence. Of course, when I go to show it live, they've already split, but people have shown up with those signs and say, look, we want to stop gun violence. That's the conversation they want to have here. That's the one they want to make front and center. We talked to a woman from East Tennessee who came here who said, look, she is a Republican, but she was could not believe that these members were pushed out in the way they were, especially when it comes to this subject. It's the parents who really are galvanized around this right now because they are concerned about what's happening in schools, especially around those high-powered wep uh, weapons. So they want to see something change, and they believe this could be the first step. Again, they believe this will happen. There will be a march that follows that goes all the way to the state capitol. Jake? All right, Ryan Young uh, in Tennessee, thanks so much. Coming up next, the chairman of the Select House Committee on Intelligence uh, will be here just moments after he got a classified briefing on those top-secret Pentagon documents that leaked online. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, a document leak with massive implications. Classified pictures, charts, and slides are circulating online. And they show that the U.S. government has been spying on its allies, including South Korea, Israel, and Ukraine. And though the U.S. has spied on its allies before, leaked intelligence about Ukraine's weapons stocks and positions is so fresh, it has already forced Ukraine to alter battle plans, according to a source close to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And now, as CNN's Oren Lieberman reports for us from the Pentagon, U.S. diplomats are racing to attempt damage control with key allies. A damaging leak from some of the highest levels of the Pentagon, rattling U.S. officials who fear the revelations could jeopardize sources and hurt U.S. relations abroad. Among the 53 classified documents reviewed by CNN, a detailed look at key shortages in Ukraine's air defenses and battlefield assessments with the war in a critical phase and Ukraine preparing for a counteroffensive. The documents were posted on Discord, a messaging and chat platform in recent weeks, where they resided unknown to the Pentagon until they were picked up and disseminated further. The Department of Justice has opened a criminal investigation into the leaks, the U.S. government is reviewing how this type of intel is shared. The Pentagon has already taken some steps to tighten the flow of such sensitive information. We're taking this very, very seriously. There is uh, uh, no uh, excuse for these kinds of documents to be in the public domain. At the top of some documents, an alphabet soup of government secrecy. Top secret. SI Gamma is signals intelligence. No foreign is no foreign nationals. 
and FISA stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The documents also reveal U.S. efforts to spy on allies around the world. A CIA intel update from March 1st says Israel's spy agency, the Mossad, advocated for protests against the government. The Israeli Prime Minister's office said the report was without any foundation whatsoever. Another document has information on internal deliberations within South Korea to sell artillery ammo that could eventually go to Ukraine. The report came from Signals Intelligence, which includes intercepted communications and drew backlash from Seoul. We strongly regret that the top U.S. intelligence agency had been illegally spying on allies like our country. We strongly demand a thorough investigation and urge that similar incidents do not occur. An official from one of the countries in Five Eyes, a crucial intelligence-sharing arrangement between the U.S. and some of its closest allies, said they expected the U.S. to share a damage assessment, even as they conduct an assessment of their own. It's not only the kind of intelligence we collect on foes, but also the kind of intelligence that all nations connect, uh, collect on their friends, too. We do this, other nations do it, too, but you don't like it to be uh, put into the public space. On the diplomatic front, it will be Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman who will smooth things over with allies and partners if needed there. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has not yet named who will lead the interagency here to make sure this kind of thing, this sort of damaging leak doesn't happen again and to tighten the control of this sort of information. Jake, what's even more troubling perhaps is this point is the Pentagon can't say certainly that there are no more documents that may come out that have already leaked and are out there already or that could come out in the near future. All right, CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss the chairman of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, Ohio Republican Mike Turner, his first interview since he received a briefing on the leaked documents just a, a short time ago. Chairman Turner, thanks for joining us. What do you see as potentially Thank the you. most damaging consequences of all this leaked intelligence, especially given how fresh the information is, just weeks or months old? Right. Well, there's, there's certainly concern here of the damage that could occur as Ukraine prepares for its big counteroffensive and certainly the support that we have from NATO allies in the United States as we support Ukraine and that effort. You know, this sort of is Russia and, and whoever has done this uh, sort of taking a page out of, of our intelligence gathering where we previously have made public Russian uh, actions as to what they were going to do in the future. Now this information coming forward can affect what we're doing with respect to to, uh, to aid Ukraine and their planning, their logistics, and, and their training. But these are static documents, and Ukraine certainly is flexible. We have the versatility, as is our, our, our NATO allies, to be able to adjust. Uh, this does come at a critical time, but uh, we do have the ability, as they, they try to adjust to this, uh, to, to continue the pressure on Russia on that eastern front, trying to push them back uh, to the Russian border. You just said something. I just want to get clarification. Are, are you saying that the Russian government was behind this leak? No, I, the, we, we really have to figure out you know, where this is coming from in order to be able to stop it. But I think you know, whoever's done this, I think, is, as I said, was taking a page out of our book of trying to impact the outcome by where we've previously released Russian uh, intelligence that we've received from Russia that shows what Russia was going to do. Here, these, these are documents that show what Ukraine and what the United States uh, and our, our NATO allies are, are doing. All right, the good to get um, clarity on that. Go ahead. So as, as we look to what where this is, obviously our number one goal is to stop it. Two is to 
uh, you know, damage control. How do we have to adjust as a result of these documents becoming public? And thirdly, you know, finding out who it is, if it certainly is an American, bringing them to justice because this obviously is is espionage and, and would rise rise to the level of being a, a traitor to your country. Are, are you confident that the Pentagon has taken all steps necessary to mitigate whatever risks there are? Absolutely. And that was what I was saying about there, there is you know, flexibility and versatility. These documents are static. They're a picture of a specific time. Both the United States and Ukraine have the ability to modify what they're doing and, and how they're approaching this issue. And we certainly have plenty of time for Ukraine to do so. So I want you to listen to retired Colonel uh, Cedric Layton on CNN earlier um, discussing who might have leaked the documents um, uh, based on the, on the picture circulating online. He said, I, I'll just read you what he said. He said, crumpled up paper that you know probably had been in someone's coat pocket or pants pocket and then spread out to be photographed. So based on that, he said he thought it was somebody, maybe an inside job, somebody who took these papers, crumpled them up, hid them somehow. Um, do you agree? It's certainly possible. And, and you know, with the fact that these are, are photographs, it does give an, an opportunity for a signature uh, for us to be able to track down these documents. And there is limited access to, to these documents and certainly in hard copy. Uh, so we, we do have the ability, I think the Department of Justice is going to be doing an, an excellent job in tracking down exactly who is responsible for this. Do you think foreign governments, uh, allies that we spied on uh, as revealed in this leak, whether Ukraine or, or Israel or any others, do you think that they're more irritated that the United States spied on them or that we did so in such a sloppy way that it was able to get out and leak? Yeah, certainly. I think it's it's the leak aspect that everybody's concerned about it. And every government has had, uh, you know, situations where their documents have leaked out. These are largely to some extent, you know, diplomatic documents where you're trying to impact the, the diplomatic relationship to encourage people to do, you know, something else, perhaps even in, in this instance, in the support of, of Ukraine. So that, that that narrative, that commentary is certainly something you don't want out in, in the public. But I mean, it seems really, really concerning that potentially there is somebody within some sort of small circle in the intelligence world who may have committed espionage here on behalf of the Russians. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, as, as your report was saying earlier, the, the concern we also have is, is what else is out there and, and what is it that we don't know? This is what's been made public. What do we don't know that may have been uh, you know, transmitted or provided in some way? Uh, about this subject matter or what other items are there. That's why we're working diligently to try to find out what the source of this is. We can stop uh, the leak itself and also at the same time try to mitigate the damage uh, so that Ukraine can be successful in its defense against this Russian aggression. Republican uh, from Ohio and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner, thank you so much for, for talking to us. Appreciate thank it, you. sir. Coming, <clears throat> coming up next, I'm going to speak to the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, who knew one of the victims killed in the deadly attack today in his city earlier. Stay with us. And we're back with our national lead, the search for answers in Louisville, Kentucky, after police say a 23-year-old man opened fire at the bank where he worked this morning. He killed four innocent people. He injured nine other innocent people, including a police officer, Joining us now to discuss is the mayor of Louisville, Craig Greenberg. Um, Mr. Mayor, first, how are you and, and how is the community of Louisville doing on this horrible day? Our city is strong, but today is certainly a horrible, tragic day. I, I personally lost a very close front friend in this evil act of violence. Uh, three other families also my heart goes out to. And 
really just extending my love and thoughts and support for all of the victims and their families. And a special thanks to our first responders, whether it was our police officers who arrived bravely and quickly at the scene, who shot the assailant, to the doctors and nurses at the hospital who treated victims as they got there. They are the heroes today and every day. You just mentioned that you knew one of the victims today. I, I believe it's, is it Tom Elliott that you were close with? That's, that's who Governor Bashir was close with. Yes, the governor and I were, were very good friends with, with Tommy, and I was with his wife earlier this morning at the hospital, and it is, it is painful, painful for all of the families I know. It just hits home in a unique way when you know one of the victims so well. I know that um, there are others that are still in the hospital, including a police officer uh, who was just a few days on the job, just 26 years old, um, had brain surgery. Do you know how he or any other of the other survivors are doing? Fortunately, uh, Officer Wilt made it through surgery, and he's, he's in serious condition uh, at the hospital right now, but he is in great hands at UofL Hospital. We were all praying and supporting him. It was just a week and a half ago uh, that I gave him, along with the chief, his graduation diploma from the academy. Um, And so I paid a visit to his academy class that was there at the hospital, offering to support him, offering the support to he and his family uh, today. So we will provide more updates on his condition as we have them. There's one other victim who is in um, serious condition. it's, it's, we're fortunate we didn't lose more lives today than we did. You mentioned this earlier in your press conference, um, but in case people didn't see it uh, and others who just don't remember, you yourself survived uh, a shooting at your campaign office uh, last year. Um, what are the people who survived this going to have to grapple with uh, in the coming days, weeks, months? It is a very difficult and challenging time. I had a really unique, surreal experience earlier this morning when we were getting conflicting reports about another friend of mine who we knew was in that meeting. No one could get a hold of him. And as I was leaving the hospital, I saw him. And no one from his family had heard from him. And so to see someone who I thought had been killed alive And this is what we talked about, exactly what you asked about, Jake. And and my advice to him from, unfortunately, firsthand experience of being a survivor of a workplace shooting is is to be with loved ones, is to embrace yourself with that love, to talk to a therapist. I actually started using a, a meditation app. I still meditate to this day as a result of following that I started that practice after the shooting. It is very difficult times to those who are victims, even if they weren't physically hurt in today's shooting, they are definitely still victims. And so I encourage them to take care of themselves physically and mentally in the days and weeks ahead. I know that the information is just coming in and that this is a day for for grieving, not a day for politics. But I will observe that a large part of your campaign platform was combating what you called Louisville's public safety and crime crisis. And I want to invite you to come back when we know more Uh, about what happened today so that we can discuss ways it could have been prevented. Um, Because that is a conversation we need to have, maybe not today, but as a society, 
We've had almost 150 mass shootings this year, and we haven't even had 100 days. You're exactly right, Jake. The only thing I would say in response to for today is this isn't about politics. This is about life and death. And so, yes, I welcome that to have that conversation and to work together with others across Louisville, but really across our entire country to end this gun violence epidemic. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg, thanks for your time. Our condolences to you and the people of Louisville. And I am inviting you back um, to have that discussion when it is the right time. Thank you for being with us today, sir. Thank you. Coming up next, the emergency request today from the Justice Department, as well as the pharmaceutical company that makes a popular abortion pill after a judge's ruling on that drug uh, Friday evening. Stay with us. In our health lead, the Justice Department just asked a federal appeals court to freeze the ruling of a judge in Texas invalidating the FDA's decades-long approval of the abortion drug Mifepristone. That ruling from the Trump-appointed judge, released late Friday, was quickly cast into question when less than an hour later, a judge in Washington state issued a decision requiring the U.S. government to keep that drug available in 17 states and D.C. CNN's Jessica Schneider is here. Jessica, what is the Justice Department asking for in this latest filing? Yeah, so DOJ and this drug manufacturer, Danco, they're really asking the Fifth Circuit for more time before Judge Katzmerich's ruling goes into effect because Judge Katzmerich set the timeline saying that his ruling halting this FDA approval of Mifepristone, it would take effect at the end of Friday night. So DOJ and Danco here asking the Fifth Circuit to step in before then to extend the judge's ruling so it doesn't end. And there's been some question as to whether the FDA could just maybe ignore this ruling. But the fact of the matter is the way this ruling is set up, the, um, the approval of the FDA approval of this drug would immediately expire at the end of Friday night. There's nothing the FDA would actually have to proactively do. So if this order were to come to fruition on Friday night, the approval would just go away. So DOJ and Danco, they are asking the Fifth Circuit to decide by Thursday at noon whether or not they're going to stay this order. That way, that'll give them enough time to go to the Supreme Court before Friday night. And to give you an idea of just how dire this situation is, according to the doctors here, um, Danco has actually attached declarations from several doctors. I'll read part of one. This is from an OBGYN in Pennsylvania, saying the district court order staying or alternatively suspending FDA's approval of mifepristone will mean that many patients across my state and our country will not be able to access abortion care at all should mifepristone be unavailable. I suspect patients will be confused and misled to believe that abortion is no longer available or unsafe. Some facilities may offer misoprostol alone, which will surely result in more unscheduled visits and emergency room visits for pain incomplete abortion and side effect concerns, many patients will not be able to access safe abortions at all. So dire warnings. In addition, Jake, just to mention, DOJ did go to a Washington federal judge today asking that judge to clarify his ruling that the FDA had to keep the drug Mifepristone available in 17 states plus D.C. They went to this judge saying, you have to clarify this because how can we uh, comply with your order if this Texas order also takes effect. So the clock is ticking to Friday night. Yeah, and it certainly seems to undermine the argument from conservatives that this was really just about sending this back to the states. Right. If this one judge in Texas is banning it everywhere in the United States. This is a Just, federal judge sending yeah. in nationwide. Uh, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Uh, the impact of the ruling cannot be overstated as medication abortion 
makes up the majority of abortions in the United States. Mifepristone blocks the hormone needed for a pregnancy to continue, and it is the first pill in the two-pill process to end a pregnancy through 10 weeks gestation. A second drug, mifeprostol, is then taken within the next 24 to 48 hours. Even though the abortion drug, mifepristone, remains legal for now, at least until Friday, CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports for us now that some doctors are already afraid to prescribe it in case it does become illegal after future court, court rulings. At this women's health care clinic in Ohio, Dr. David Burkans is telling women who are expecting to get medication abortions next week that they should change their plans. They're scrambling to change their schedules to get in to see us earlier. Dr. Burkans says his lawyer told him that starting Saturday, he can't give the drug mifepristone for abortions or miscarriages because of a federal judge's ruling in Texas last week. Mifepristone in a regimen with another drug called misoprostol is FDA approved for abortion up until 10 weeks after the last period, and they've been used safely for more than 20 years. Data analyzed by CNN shows mifepristone is even safer than some common low-risk prescription drugs, including penicillin and Viagra. Misoprostol can be used on its own in a medication abortion, but it's not FDA approved that way. Studies show it's not as effective And some doctors say it can make a woman feel much worse. We're more likely to see failures and therefore more likely to need surgical intervention after mesoprostol alone. Dr. Erica Werner is chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Tufts Medical Center in Massachusetts. We train to try to keep people healthy, give them the most evidence-based care. And this ruling really jeopardizes that. We're feeling demoralized. We're feeling scared for our patients. She's hoping that something will stop the Texas ruling from going into effect. We may get advice from lawyers as the week goes on about whether we really need to stop next week. Monday, U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Javier Becerra vowed that the Biden administration would use every resource to protect a woman's right to reproductive health care. I say this for every woman in America who may need mifepristone. Mifepristone is still legal for use. Mifepristone is still available today. And we are going to do everything we can within the legal process to ensure that that doesn't change. But at clinics around the country... It's a lot of uncertainty. They don't know what will happen next if they'll be able to keep giving their patients the best possible care. California announced today that they're amassing a stockpile of misoprostol. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We're going to stay on that story. Just in, CNN has learned that the U.S. State Department has now declared a Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, wrongfully detained by Russia, officially. That designation comes roughly 12 days after his arrest. Ahead, I'm going to speak with a close friend of Gershkovich about how the process has impacted any effort to bring him home. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Texas governor jumps in and pledges to pardon a man convicted of killing a Black Lives Matter protester just hours after the verdict had been handed down and before a pardon had even been requested. Why? Plus, this hour, Nashville City Council will vote whether to reinstate one of the Democratic state lawmakers expelled after their unruly gun violence protests on the statehouse floor. But it's unclear they have the votes to do so. Leading this hour, however, four people are dead and at least nine injured after a gunman shot up a bank in Louisville, Kentucky this morning. We're learning the names of the victims whose lives 
were tragically cut short. Thomas Elliott, James Tutt, Joshua Barrick, and Juliana Farmer. The interim Louisville police chief, Jacqueline Gwynne Villarol, uh, also shared more information about the injured earlier. The officer who is in critical condition today, Officer Nicholas Wilt, 26 years of age, just graduated from the police academy on March 31st. I just swore him in and his family was there to witness his journey to become a police officer. He was struck in the head, engaged in this incident. Nick has come out of brain surgery and is in critical but stable condition as we speak. Our coverage of this tragedy starts with CNN's Adrian Broadus, who's in Louisville, Kentucky, for us there. Police say the gunman was a current employee of the bank. And a law enforcement source says the gunman knew he was going, knew he was going to be let go from his job. At least four people are dead, nine others injured, including at least two police officers after a mass shooting at a bank in downtown Louisville. Three which are in critical condition, including our officer. Three who are listed in non-critical condition and three who have been treated and released. Police say one of the two injured officers is a rookie. The officer who is in critical condition today, Officer Nicholas Wilt, 26 years of age, just graduated from the police academy on March 31st. I just swore him in. He was struck in the head, engaged in this incident. Nick has come out of brain surgery and is in critical but stable condition. It started around 8.30 this morning when Louisville Metro Police say they received a report of shots fired and a possible active shooter at Old National Bank. Within three minutes of being dispatched, Officers arrived on scene and encountered the suspect almost immediately, still firing gun, gunshots. Officers exchanged gunfire with the 23-year-old shooter who died at the scene. Police say the shooter was shot and killed by officers. Tommy Elliott, 63 years of age. Jim Tut, 64 years of age. Josh Barrett, 40 years of age. And Juliana Farmer. 57. A federal law enforcement source tells CNN the gun used in the shooting was an AR-15 style rifle. Two law enforcement sources say the shooter started as an intern in 2018 and later became a full-time employee. Police say he was still working at the time of the shooting, but had been notified he was going to be terminated. That's according to a law enforcement source familiar with the investigation. This so man I says his wife works at the bank and called him as everything unfolded. I got a call from my wife panicking that she was locked in the vault, that there was an active shooter in the building, and called 911. Just a very traumatic phone call to get right at 8.30. I haven't heard about her co-workers yet or anything, but I have talked to her and seen her. She's fine. Tonight, investigators say they're still trying to determine a motive. Kentucky's governor says this hits very close to home. Today, I'm hurt, and I'm hurting, and I know so many people out there are as well. We lost four children of God today, one of whom was one of my closest friends. 
Tonight, this community and those outside of this community are hurting. We also learned earlier today that the 23-year-old shooter live-streamed the incident. Back to you, Jake. Adrian brought us in Louisville, Kentucky for us. Thanks so much. Also topping our National League right now, hundreds are gathering in Nashville to protest the expulsion of two Democratic state representatives. They were removed from jobs last week after state legislative Republicans said that they broke the rules by bringing a boisterous gun reform protest to the floor of the state house in just minutes. Nashville's Metropolitan Council is going to hold a special vote on whether to appoint one of those ousted lawmakers, former state representative Justin Jones, to fill his own seat on an interim basis until a special election can be held. CNN's Isabel Rosales joins us now from outside City Hall in Nashville. And Isabel, you're standing among supporters of former state representative Jones. What's the mood like outside the building? Jake, there is an energized focus toward addressing, first of all, what many consider an injustice. This is a matter of democracy for so many people that are out here. Uh, What happened is Justin Pearson and Justin Jones expelled from the state house uh, for breaking decorum rules, for speaking out of turn without being recognized. Many say that they were simply speaking, being a voice for their constituents and demanding gun reform. But now they have been punished completely expelled. So they're looking to get them back into those seats. And then the second point, take a look. You can see it in the signs. They want to go back to the issue at hand, and that is six dead at the Covenant School, three nine-year-olds included. They want action on guns, and they can't do that, Jake, without the representatives. Right now, between Nashville and Memphis, more than 140,000 people have no representation as we speak in the state house. All right, I want to get in the weeds here uh, for a second, Isabel, because for Jones to be appointed today to fill his own seat on an interim basis, the Memphis council rules would need to be suspended, and it would only take two council members to stop that. What's going to happen? Right. Right, Jake, that's going to be a critical vote. The suspension of a rule that does not allow the council to uh, both nominate and appoint somebody within the same meeting. So it just takes, as you mentioned, two council members to object, and then that measure fails. What does that mean, then? That means that they're going to have to wait four weeks in order to nominate Jones. When it comes to uh, actually appointing Jones, I'm told by council members that they are confident that they have the support there. And also new reporting, Jake, we are hearing from a Metro official that the mayor's office has quietly been encouraging uh, council members here not to object. So here in the next couple of minutes, that council meeting is going to start, that special meeting. And what we're going to see afterwards is this large crowd of people marching over with the council meetings to the state house, demanding that their voices are heard. All right, Isabel Rosales in Nashville for us. Thanks so much. One of the council members who will be in this special meeting joins us now. Council member uh, Brett Withers. Uh, Council member Withers, thanks so much for joining us. The meeting's just minutes away. It's only going to take two council members to oppose suspending the rules, uh, which would stop Justin Jones from being appointed to fill his own seat today. Do you have the votes to have him become the interim state representative? 
I believe that we do. Um, and we've had hundreds, if not thousands, of emails, not only from District 52 constituents, but constituents throughout Nashville and Davidson County and the state of Tennessee asking that we do just that. So I believe that not only do we have the votes uh, to confirm Justin this afternoon at 4.30, uh, I would uh, strongly encourage any of my colleagues uh, to avoid uh, objecting to the suspension of the rules. There are just so many people who are hurting right now and are angry, justifiably angry, and that this is not an appropriate time to play political games like that. We need to get Justin Jones back to his rightful place representing House District 52 in the General Assembly. And either, either way, whether it's the rules are suspended or this vote takes place in four weeks, you have the votes to reappoint Jones, right? It's just a question about whether it's going to happen today or in four weeks. We do. Uh, that, that's correct. However, our General Assembly could potentially have already adjourned by the time that he would be uh, in under that four-week scenario. So we have critical votes that the General Assembly is taking that pertain to Davidson County, many of which are harmful to Nashville and Davidson County. We need Representative Jones back in his seat at least to be able to cast votes on those critical measures that are before the General Assembly this evening and tomorrow. So I, I implore my colleagues not to play political games, to listen to the will of all of the voters, and to place Justin Jones back in his rightful place in the General Assembly this evening. And just to remind our, our viewers, last week there were three state representatives up for expulsion. State Representative Justin Jones and State Representative Justin Pearson were expelled. Uh, state Representative Gloria Johnson was not. Now, when she was asked why she thought she was spared expulsion, she said, quote, it might have to do with the color of my skin. Do you agree? Do you think that played a role? I, I think that we have seen so much uh, racism, frankly, from our General Assembly that that, that definitely plays a role. I will say as well that uh, Representative Johnson had uh, a legal defense, and she, it is true that she focused her defense a little bit more on evidence of what she did and did not do during the proceedings. But nevertheless, the, the results speak for themselves and really speak to the level of racism that we've seen from our General Assembly for quite a long while now and uh, seemingly getting worse and worse every year. So the, the this, Tennessee this is telling and the Tennessee state again, speaks to why we need to get representatives back in. Yeah, the Tennessee state legislature is made up of 75 Republicans and 22 Democrats in the aftermath of the expulsions. Um, many were, have been quick to, to blame gerrymandering for the supermajority Republicans hold in Congress, and thus the action taking, taken expelling the lawmakers. Uh, the former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder tweeted, quote, without gerrymandering, there would be no expulsions. Now, to be clear, Tennessee is a largely Republican state, but it doesn't seem to be a 75% Republican state. Do you think gerrymandering is to blame? I think gerrymandering definitely has played a role in a lot of our state districting. We, we also recently lost our Nashville congressional seat that we've had for 150 or some years uh, due to that very same uh, gerrymandering policy. But there's no question that in drawing the state Senate and state House lines that gerrymandering played a role to make it very, very difficult to elect Democrats, women or persons of color in many uh, areas where otherwise they would be able to support them throughout Tennessee. All right, Councilmember Brett Withers, you have a vote to take. Good luck to you. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Coming up, we're going to bring you the latest live from Nashville when that vote happens in just a few minutes. Plus, an unusual legal move. The Texas governor promises to pardon a convicted murderer before he'd even been sentenced. Then, will your gas car be an antique in just a matter of years? The new rule that is meant to drive people into electric vehicles. International lead a Texas man convicted of murder on Friday could soon walk free after becoming a conservative cause celeb. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, seems quite eager to pardon Daniel Perry, whose case is now under review by the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. Perry is a white Army sergeant and rideshare driver who was found guilty of shooting and killing Garrett Foster, another veteran and white protester, at a Black Lives Matter demonstration in 2020. Tony Plohetsky joins us now. He's an investigative reporter with the Austin American Statesman. Thanks so much for joining us. Does the family of Garrett Foster, the victim, have any recourse here before or after the decision on the pardon comes down? So keep in mind, what is happening on the ground here in Texas is so unprecedented. But I can tell you that right now they are exploring what their legal options are, as are prosecutors here in Austin. And one of the things that they are trying to do, even as we speak, is assemble evidence that then they can submit to the Board of Pardons and Parole arguing against this potential pardon. So look, Juries don't always get it right. I understand that. And governors have discretion. But why is this happening, do you think? Is it because uh, this individual's cause has become a, a real charge on the right? Well, unfortunately, the governor's office really is not going beyond what they have said in terms of of why they are seeking this and seeking this so aggressively and in such a swift manner. The governor, for example, has not said this is what I observed or this is what I know from the trial that really gives uh, a question, calls this jury verdict into question. Instead, We look at the timeline of what exactly happened, and that is on Friday afternoon, late in the day, jurors delivered their verdict around 4.30 in the afternoon. And by the evening on social media, we were seeing and hearing conservative voices nationally calling upon the governor to quickly issue a pardon. And then not 24 hours after this jury's verdict, the governor at 2 p.m. Central Time here in Texas goes on Twitter and says he intends to do just that. So Governor Abbott himself appoints members of the Texas Board of Pardons and Parole. So after they review this verdict, how likely is it that they will recommend a pardon? Keep in mind, this board rarely uh, seeks to have someone pardoned here in Texas. And it is even more rare that the governor actually grants them. We're talking about a handful a year, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But I can tell you that the belief here in Austin and here in Travis County is that given the fact that the governor appoints members of this board, they are likely to do exactly what he is asking them to do, which is bring forward as quickly as possible a recommendation for a pardon. So the basic argument, as I understand it, and please, Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, is Mr. Perry uh, had a gun. The guy he killed had a gun. And the question is whether Mr. Perry shot him in self-defense. Is that right? 
That's exactly it. But importantly, here in Texas, and this is the point that prosecutors strenuously argued during a two-week trial, the law says that you can't instigate, you can't provoke an attack on yourself and then say, I acted in self-defense. I used deadly force in self-defense. And as part of that, prosecutors brought forth a series of social media posts, a series of messages on Facebook that Sergeant Perry had with a number of different people in which he seemed to indicate a mindset, an animus toward protesters. And so that became really signature evidence in this case that jurors apparently felt as though indicated that he had it out for protesters and that that night actually went looking for trouble. Perry's defense team says that is absolutely not the case. He inadvertently turned into this protest. He felt threatened by Garrett Foster and this AK-47. And so, according to them, he fired in self-defense. Is there any suggestion that, uh, that Mr. Perry, Sergeant Perry, didn't get a fair trial that there was evidence uh, that was that was fairly that was I'm sorry that was unfairly um, denied to the jury any sort of malfeasance at all uh, that would suggest that Sergeant Perry didn't didn't get due due process or justice. Look, it's so early in this process, right? We're talking about just a, a verdict that happened days ago, and so attorneys, his defense team, has not brought forward any sort of argument that the trial was not fair or that there was some corruption in some way. I will tell you that his defense team did attempt uh, before the case even went to trial to have it dismissed, saying that uh, there was an unfair presentation to a grand jury by the district attorney here in Austin. But it's very notable that that argument did not go very far, that the judge presiding over the case quickly shot it down and ruled that the case would go forward. Yeah. Well, Sergeant Perry deserves justice, but Garrett Foster, the victim, the murdered man, he deserves justice as well. Uh, I look forward to hearing more about this and whether or not um, Governor uh, Abbott, you know, has some sort of grounds for why he wants to pardon this individual. Tony Poletsky, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Donald Trump's attorneys are trying to stop former Vice President Mike Pence from testifying about the January 6th insurrection. Will this Hail Mary pass work? And any minute, the Nashville City Council is going to start uh, deciding if they will reinstate Justin Jones to the state legislature after being expelled for being involved in unruly protest on the floor of the House chamber. We're going to bring you that decision live. In our politics lead, Donald Trump has filed a long-shot appeal to stop former Vice President Mike Pence from testifying before a federal grand jury, according to a source. This is part of the special counsel's investigation into Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. And CNN's Evan Perez joins us now live. Evan, Vice President Pence could come before the grand jury theoretically as early as this week. What is the Trump team's strategy here? Well, uh, Jake, they're trying to make every effort to try to prevent this testimony from happening, as they have uh, done with uh, any number of previous White House, uh, senior White House officials who have been brought before this grand jury. They keep filing these uh, these executive privilege claims and they keep getting turned away by these by these judges. And so it's unlikely they're going to succeed here. But, you know, if you know, for Mike Pence, who has given up his his right to appeal, 
Uh, Mike Pence already got a ruling that he believes uh, protects at least some of his uh, privileges. Uh, the judge here, James Brosberg, he's the chief judge here in Washington, uh, ruled that Mike Pence has to appear. He has to answer certain questions, but he does have some limits, including uh, over when Pence was was uh, presiding over the Senate as the president of the Senate. So beyond that, he he does have to sit and, and respond to questions about his interactions with the former president in those weeks uh, before January 6th. So we expect that Mike Pence will have to show up and that uh, the former president will lose again, Jake, uh, as he has in a number of these uh, these appeals. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, I, I guess the first thing I want to ask is you used to work for the Trump White House. You resigned in disgust on January 6th. Is that a fair description? Correct. Okay. Uh, so um, if you could ask Vice President Pence anything under oath about that day, um, assuming that he was willing to participate and tell you, what, what, what would you want to know? I think it's going to be really important for them to ask uh, the vice president what the president's mindset was leading up to January 6th. What was his goal with the Stop the Steal rally and um, where his mindset was in terms of whether he had thought he actually won or lost the election. And so I'm curious if he had conversations on that. And it'll be interesting to see uh, them shed light on that with his testimony. What would you ask? Vice President Pence under oath, if you could, about about January 6th. I'd want to know if he, the president asked him to uh, uh, overturn the election. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to ask all of you. Sorry, <laughs> to, sorry I didn't give you a heads up, but it just occurred I mean, we, to me. I'm, we know he called him a lot of names. I'd be curious yeah. to know exactly what Trump yeah. said, how he said it. Uh, I think that also speaks to his state of mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would like to know about the insults that were lodged at him. And, and just also, like, I, I would want to know, and I guess this is less a legal thing, but, like, how in fear was he for his life at that time? And, and did he really, did he blame Trump. Like, this is not a legal thing, but I would just want to know personally, did you blame Trump for what was happening? You were there. You were going through all this stuff. That's what I would And his family was there, too. And your yeah. family And he didn't hear there. from Trump when he was going through it. When that. he was going through it. But the beforehand, like, did you feel like he was staring all these people up and put you at risk? So, and, and Vice President Pence, uh, sometime in the last week or so, um, really disagreed with Donald Trump uh, when Donald Trump talked about the January, uh, the January 6th uh, victims, political prisoners, when he ran that uh, choir, the January 6th choir, right before the Waco uh, rally. Are you surprised that so many Republicans still, voters in turn, and I mean, and also members of Congress, are on Trump's side of what was very obviously a violent insurrection that Donald Trump incited? Yeah, it's actually really shocking to me. If you would have told me um, when I resigned on January 6th uh, where we'd be at now, I have plenty of text messages and emails and everything from Republicans who uh, were supportive of my decision to resign that day and were outraged and disgusted by Donald Trump's um, behavior. And so now to see where we are, where many are willing to are, are unwilling to speak out against it is uh, appalling to me. Let's talk about uh, the ruling um, on Mifepristone, uh, the abortion drug that's been legal for decades uh, and also scientifically found to be safe. Um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez turned heads over the weekend when she called on the FDA to ignore the judge's ruling. She told that to Dana Bash, uh, 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 suspending uh, the use of the drug. But now uh, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who, can, who calls herself pro-life, although she's trying to find a I guess uh, some sort of middle ground where people can agree on on this issue. Uh, she says she agrees with AOC, uh, and she has some strong criticism for her fellow Republicans. Take a listen. 
I agree with ignoring it. This is an issue that Republicans have been largely on the wrong side of. Um, we have, over the last nine months, not shown compassion towards women. And this is one of those issues that I've tried to lead on as someone who's pro-life and just have some common sense. In the state of South Carolina, just a few weeks ago, we had some uh, folks in the state legislature that essentially wanted to execute women who had abortions. I mean, you know, it's it's a huge deal to have Nancy May say this. Um, but, like, let, let's set aside, because there are two issues here. Should you ignore a court ruling, I think, is like, you know, in a democracy, I think if you start ignoring court rulings that you don't like, that could have some very serious consequences. But then let's focus on the abortion issue, which is an issue where Nancy May is saying, look, we are on the wrong side of this with the public. We keep losing. Republicans keep losing because we are going against something that is really health care. When you look at these, you know, the, the mifepristone, that is not just for abortions. That's for people who have miscarriages. And if people who get pregnant, they have miscarriages and then they need medical help. So you're telling them they won't be able to get medical help. So she is saying, look, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. We have to step back from this. That's what she's saying. So uh, Ramesh Panura was here uh, last week, and we were talking about the vote in the Wisconsin right. state Supreme Court uh, election where the progressive candidate, and look, Wisconsin's a 50-50 state, Absolutely. but this was not a 50-50 election. She won, and I think it's agreed that, that she largely won, or she, there were at least a lot of the motivation was, was abortion. That, and, and Ramesh was saying, that this isn't, you know, this wasn't about a 20-week abortion ban or 15-week abortion ban. This was about a zero-week abortion ban that would happen. Are, are Republicans not reading the room, do you think, when it comes to that middle ground that Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts was trying to, trying to find on a 15-week ban? I think that's the question here. And we saw this in Wisconsin, and we saw this in the midterms, and from talking to voters and from polling, that a majority of voters are very uncomfortable with outright bans. They see this as a taking away of health care, they are concerned when you hear stories about people not being able to get the health care they need. This is deeply unpopular. And I think you are hearing more from Republicans like May saying, look, we have to figure this out. We are going to keep losing on this issue. This is a winning issue for Democrats. What do you think? I agree. I think that the Republican Party needs to find a coherent message on abortion, um, whether that's, you know, a 15-week ban, settling on something, because right now they're allowing Democrats to fill the void and say that they're for a total ban. And as we saw in Wisconsin, a total ban is a total loser for battleground states. And heading into 2024, I think that just is going to be a lot of issues for Republican candidates. This ruling by the Texas judge banning Mifepristone nationwide mm-hmm. um, really undermines the argument from conservatives that overturning Roe v. Wade was just about sending it back to the states. That's a nationwide ban, not a Texas ban. Yeah, for sure. It's a little disingenuous. But I think what you're seeing is, and we saw in uh, 2022, my home state, Pennsylvania, uh, and the state of Arizona, what they did was they took the people who voted for this judge in the first place and replaced them with Democrats. And that seems to be the only way that we're going to have to distinguish ourselves from the Republican Party on whether it's guns or abortion rights, um, is that you just have to elect a Democrat to, to the Senate and to the White House. Because otherwise, uh, look, elections matter. Judges matter. And you're seeing that they have an every, uh, everyday tangible, livable effect on your life, at least I want, women. I want to ask you, as a former uh, Biden White House official, mm-hmm. um, earlier today, uh, Al Roker was at the uh, Easter egg roll, mm-hmm. and he asked uh, President Biden about his reelection plans. Uh, take a listen. Help a brother out. Make <laughs> no, some news no, for no, me. No. I, well, I, I plan on running out, but we're not prepared to announce it yet. 
I mean, what is that? <laughs> I plan on running, but we're not going to announce it yet. So he's running. Yeah, he's running. <laughs> so, uh, but so what are we waiting for? I don't even understand. What, what is the, he's not going to announce it. He just announced it. Sure. I don't know what everybody's waiting for. <laughs> I don't know what everybody's talking about. I mean, I don't well, think he has to announce until January, if you ask me. I would let the Republicans and the media, no, no offense, just focus on the debates every month coming up and every Republican trying to outmaggot each other until January, Trump's uh, December court date. There's lots of things that he can just he can just focus on. Uh, and he's proven to be a successful first term president by just focusing on pol- legislative politics, not campaign. But politics. why the kabuki? I don't I think. Well, I think when he says I have not renounced it, they're talking about a formal announcement, be it a an email or a video or a rally where he declares this and that triggers certain you know fundraising rules and such. And it seems to me from the people I talk to that the White House or you know the president's advisors don't see a lot of urgency in doing that. You know, they, there's, they're not facing any kind of challenge in the primary. They think the Republicans are beating each other up over on that side. And they think that the president is busy being president. He's doing foreign travel. He's working on legislation. And so they, are, they, they don't seem to see a lot of urgency in taking this step. He's also pretty unpopular right now, we should point out, <laughs> President Biden. He's unpopular, but that No offense. Back to you. No offense. Back to you. Stopped him before. Right. He is, you know, he has mm-hmm. continued on. And I mean, they may be looking for the strongest point to 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 make this big announcement. When can they make the biggest splash? They clearly want to be cautious about that. But yeah, I think everybody wants to know when he's going to do it. The Easter Bunny was probably out there asking, trying to get some <laughs> some news out of it. What what Democrat do you think, as a Republican, what Democrat do you think would be the strongest candidate to run in twenty twenty four? Certainly not the vice president. Um, I think she would be the weakest candidate for them to put up. I think in terms of a strong candidate, Pete Buttigieg is someone that I think Republicans would probably be worried about if Democrats put up. Um, but the, if you know Biden chose for some reason not to run, which I think all signs point toward him running, I think for uh, Republicans, I would hope that it's not Donald Trump because I think that we will lose, and that has been proven, um, not with just him losing in 2020, but with him losing or his uh, backed candidates losing in 2022. So I really hope that we'll put up anyone else. But right now, no one seems to be taking him on. But there's, yeah, there's I was a, just going to say, Donald, just to, just to be <laughs> fair, Donald Trump polling at 25% popularity on the ABC News Washington Post poll. Mm-hmm. Traditionally not a good poll for him, but still that's pretty low. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, the, the reason why nobody has decided to challenge the oldest president in, in history is because he's been one of the most successful presidents from a domestic policy standpoint in terms of getting things done since LBJ. Okay, and so let, let, let me who just would want we, to challenge him? We only have a few seconds left. <laughs> who would the strongest Republican be? I asked her who the strongest Democrat would be. The strongest Republican is anybody who's an X factor. Nobody. Every, you want Trump because at least we know that independents do not like him. Yeah. Uh, what we don't know is how independents will feel about other candidates. All right. Thanks to all. Appreciate it. Any moment, the Nashville City Council is going to vote on reinstating one of the expelled state lawmakers. We're going to go there live. Plus, an update from the U.S. State Department on the Wall Street Journal reporter being held hostage, essentially, in Russia. Stay with us. Justin Jones has been elected as the interim successor for the vacant seat of Tennessee House District 52. Pursuant to the state law and the rules governing the metropolitan. So just moments ago, the Nashville City Council voted to appoint Democratic former state representative Justin Jones back to fill his seat on an interim basis. This is after, of course, he was expelled from the state legislature in Tennessee last week. Jones and another colleague were forced out of their jobs by their Republican colleagues after participating in 
uh, a rather boisterous, if not unruly, gun control protest on the floor of the State House that Republicans say broke the rules of decorum on the State House floor days prior. CNN's Isabel Rosales is in Nashville for us. And Isabel, uh, a quick and unanimous vote. And that's exactly what city council members who spoke with me uh, and the community here at large were hoping for. This is such a big moment, not only for Justin Jones being sent back to his job, but also for nearly 70,000 constituents, people here in the Nashville, Davidson County area, who he represents, who for days now have not had a voice, have not had someone to represent them before the state house. So just moments ago, uh, we saw the votes tallying up by machine 36 council members out of the whole 40 Metro Council voting yes to you to go ahead and appoint Justin Jones back to his seat as an interim successor. Zero of them that were present voting uh, as an objection. Uh, and so now he is the interim successor. The meeting, by the way, Jake, opening up with the mayor, John Cooper, calling this an unprecedented moment and saying this is what was needed because of what we saw at the state house. Two of them being expelled on decorum rules um, for leading a protest there on the House floor, calling that unprecedented and urging his members to, to react quickly. And that is exactly what we saw. Even the nomination of Justin Jones was symbolic as well with uh, Delisha Porterfield, who ran against Jones for District 52 and lost, nominating him to his position, giving him back that seat again, Jake. All right, great. Thank you so much, Isabel Rosales. Uh, let's go to Ryan Young, who's outside also, to talk about this. Uh, so um, it's almost like a game of, of tennis here. The Republicans uh, hit the ball towards the Democrats of Nashville, and they hit the ball back. Yes, uh, Jake, so now the march has already started. They're going straight to the Capitol. Uh, from what we're being told, this march is going down here for a purpose because they want to make sure that the state Capitol realizes that he is coming back. Uh, we are behind this crowd now as we're trying to catch up with the, uh, the representative. There was a prayer visual before this all started. You can feel the excitement from this crowd who's just excited about the fact that they've been able to turn back what they feel was like an assault on democracy. So this is all happening right now live. We believe they may stop. Oh, hold on. Be careful with the stairs there. Uh, we believe they may stop to do some sort of news conference at some point, Jake. But the excitement in this crowd is just palpable because they really wanted to send a message. Um, so we're going to walk to try to get in front of this uh, crowd as they march to the Capitol. And uh, at this point, they do plan to talk. Justin Jones going back to the state house. All right, Brian, keep us abreast. Keep keep us abreasted of, of developments there. Keep us abreast of developments there, uh, so we can bring that news conference. But in the meantime, let's turn to our world lead, uh, because uh, not long ago, the U.S. State Department formally declared American journalist Evan Gershkovich quote wrongfully detained. The Wall Street Journal reporter has had zero consular access ever since he was arrested by the Russians 12 days ago. Russian investigators Friday formally charged him with espionage. It's a claim that the White House calls ridiculous. Uh, Jeremy Burke is with us now. Uh, he and Evan Kershkovich were college friends uh, who lived together in Brooklyn. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, I want to ask about your relationship with Evan, but first tell us what you're hearing about Evan's current situation. We heard he was able to meet with his lawyers, but has he been able to make any sort of contact with, with any other officials or with family? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Jake. Uh, really grateful for the opportunity to share Evan's story. From what we understand, Evan was able to see 
the Russian legal team working on his behalf last week. Um, and we also understand that he has received a few letters that were translated into Russian that uh, myself and um, a few other of Evan's close friends and family have written him. So um, that's what we know right now. Uh, as we understand it, he's still being held in solitary confinement and no U.S. consular officials have been able to see him yet. So that, that's what we know right now. So you saw a letter from Evan. Is there anything you could tell us about it? I, no, no. I, I did not see the letter from Evan. Letters that we have written have been oh, okay. sent to him. Got it. Um, to, to, to clarify that, yes. When was the last time you heard from him in any way? Evan and I spoke a little under three weeks ago now. Um, we were just joking back and forth about uh, attending a mutual friend's bachelor party this weekend um and we were you know gossiping about about former classmates and um you know other people we know in our network uh you know it was very regular normal conversation that we have a lot uh you know we're, we're in very close contact evan's parents are, are uh former soviet jews who, who fled the soviet union to come to the united states their son went back by all accounts he he loved his job he loved his life in russia uh, now he's wrongfully detained in a russian uh prison um what is this like for your friend to be going through this nightmare? Yeah, one can only imagine what is going through Evan's head and, and, and what he's thinking right now. This is a horrible, awful situation. And not only that, is Evan is one of the most extroverted, gregarious, friendly people I know. And you hit the nail on the head, Jake. He, he really loved his life in Russia. He loved the Russian people. And he went back there to both explore his roots and because he felt like he could make an impact as Russia was changing and becoming more isolated over time. He felt like he could really share their stories in a way that the Western audience could understand. So, you know, I can only guess as to what he's thinking. I'm sure he understands the gravity of his situation. But at the end of the day, we want to center Evan's humanity in this situation. And we really just want to get him back home as soon as, soon as we can and as safely as we can. All right, Jeremy, we'll have you back uh, and we're going to keep telling his story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up, the Biden administration taking aim at gas cars. Stay with us. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is preparing to release strict new proposed rules that could make up to two-thirds of new passenger vehicles electric by 2032. CNN's Bill Weir is here. Bill, how significant would this be? This would be massive, Jake. This would be uh, some of the strictest air pollution laws anywhere in the world. It would be the most ambitious environmental set of regulations in the United States history in, in one swoop here. Uh, if the announcement comes from Michael Regan, as expected, uh, they would take U.S. EV sales, which are now less than 6 percent, up to 66 percent in less than a decade. And that, of course, means ramping up uh, charging station, manufacturing, filling the energy grid with renewable power, uh, a smarter transmission line system. It takes about half as many laborers to build an electric car as it does a gas-powered car. So there's a huge labor piece of this uh, at the heart of it. But in all, it is part of what science uh, says must be done to decarbonize as soon as possible to keep the earth from dangerous tipping points in the in the climate space. California already voted to eliminate new gas car sales by 2035. It looks like Europe, Canada, the UK will follow there. And this might be part of a, a movement to sort of tie together federal policy to California's. The auto manufacturers like one set of rules instead of several. But this is a huge, hugely ambitious idea, Jake. 
All right, Bill Weir, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead whence you get your podcasts all two hours sitting there like a giant peach cobbler. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.